Welcome action fans, and thanks for joining us for another edition of All 90s Action All The Time. In this, our penultimate entry in our 90s Stallone season. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Murphy, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the action disaster flick, Daylight. Oh, and who do I mean by we? Well, of course, I'm alongside me to talk about this one is my regular co-host, you know him. He is the Bloodhound Picks co-host, screenwriter, and a man who always has an instinct for the torque of any given situation. It's Mr. Craig, Craig Drahang. I'll never leave you behind, Scott, unless you <laughs> break your neck, then I'll have to. <laughs> oh, that's that's nice to know. Good, good, good to know that like, in 90% of situations, <laughs> you'll keep me alive unless... I break my neck, and then, and then that's me. That's me done for. Uh, more of which on later. Uh, so some background on this one yeah. uh, before we get get stuck into it. Daylight was released in the US on December sixth, nineteen ninety six. It was directed by Rob Cohen, whose notable credits include Dragon, the Blue Street Story, Dragon Heart, uh, the, the first Fast and the Furious film and triple uh, x and uh, so that's what he's famous for as a director um he's also become much much more problematic in in recent years given the very dark and disturbing allegations uh, made against him um but unfortunately we ca we cannot go into that because we just don't have the space to the to you know to give to stuff like to like that you know the the kind of appropriate space and, and the respect that it kind of deserves um but if you want to read about it just type in rob cohen allegations and um it makes for very depressing reading uh, moving on it was written by leslie boehm who also wrote um, nowhere to run and dante's peak another disaster film uh, Review-wise, it is currently sitting at 5.9 out of 10 on IMDb, 27% uh, on Rotten Tomatoes based on 41 reviews. It doesn't have a Metacritic score and it's got a 2.8 on Letterboxd. At the box office, the movie made $159.2 million off of an $80 million budget. So while not a total flop, was definitely not what Universal would have been hoping for. Although it is interesting to see the breakdown of those numbers, as it very much did flop in the US, making a paltry $33 million at the US box office. But abroad, it made the other $126.2 million, making a much bigger success uh, overseas. Which is kind of interesting to me because I always think of Stone being like a very American star, but like um, no, uh, did much better worldwide this one. And I think the disaster films seem to they normally appeal abroad a little bit more. What I've noticed is that right? Yeah, I, yeah. A lot of a lot of the disaster films seem to make um, their money back overseas more than you know other types of the action genre. Well, I don't know if this one's fully in action, but, you know, the adventure action element. Yeah, I mean, I think it still counts as a 
uh, action film. I mean, that's part of the reason why we're covering it. But um, yep. Yeah. <laughs> but we do, you know, we kind of followed a bunch of kind of themes in the, this season uh, for Stallone. And one of those themes is Stallone has very much, even though unsuccessfully, uh, he's managed to, to keep on trend. And with this movie, he once again keeps on trend as 1996 was the year kind of the disaster film came back in a big way, you know, with um, even though Independence Day's uh, sci-fi alien invasion movie kind of works like a disaster flick. And also in 96, there was Twister. And then in the years after, in 97, there was the rival Volcano flicks, Dante's Peaks, as we mentioned, and Volcano. And obviously... Titanic was the most successful film ever made up until Avatar in 2009. And then in 98, you have the, the rival asteroid flicks in Armageddon and Deep Impact. And the you also have the much, much less successful uh, Hard Rain at the start of 98. So there's a, a kind of clump of uh, disaster flicks uh, kind of in the, the mid to late 90s. And yeah, it's, it also feels like which I know we'll get into it more, but on brand with what Stallone was doing in the nineties that we've talked about is him still branch, even though it's still an action movie, it's him branching away from, you know, the one man army or whatever he was considering that he was doing in the, in the eighties, like him trying to take the more dramatic approach. That's very true because like having listened to a couple of interviews from the time he was talking about in, in one of the interviews I watched that he was looking more to try and get the scripts, you know, the kind of scripts that Pacino gets or Harrison Ford gets. That was, you know, the exact quote there. And um, yeah, he felt that he'd been kind of typecast as like the one man army type um, from kind of Rambo two onwards. And he, he mentioned in the interview as well that he did have a lot more dialogue in films in, you know, in the kind of late 70s, early 80s, and he kind of wanted to go back to that. And you can tell by the kind of choices he's made of like, he is kind of going towards less out and out action and more kind of character-based stuff, even if it doesn't, as we've kind of talked about, hasn't been entirely successful in something like The Specialist, in something like Assassins, where, you know, and it's interesting as well, because I do feel like these films, The Specialist, Assassins, this film kind of make up like this little mini forgotten trilogy of like, they occupy like an odd space in Stallone's filmography. They're not quite as unknown as some of his early 2000 work, like Driven or... The Avenging Angel or Detox or whatever, or like it's some of his kind of late seventies, early eighties work, like um, Nighthawks and and Fist and, and stuff like that. They're not quite as unknown as that, but they are kind of people seem to have either hazy, don't really know them, or they have kind of hazy memories of them of like, oh, isn't that that one with uh, Banderas? Isn't that that one with? You know Sharon Stone isn't that, that one that has the big explosion in the tunnel, but like they're not 
it's kind of hazily remembered and like i kind of grouped, i've kind of always grouped those three films kind of together because they like yeah they occupy this kind of odd space i don't know if you feel the same yeah no i do especially watching them for the sake of this podcast to uh, revisiting everything you can kind of see it i think firsthand and um it's, it's weird as well because like you see these kind of different threads kind of joining up because having watched them for the season like in a kind of odd way this movie kind of makes a kind of companion piece to cliffhanger in that the character is quite similar in terms of he's trying to get redemption for an accident which we do see at the start of cliffhanger and we kind of don't see um here you know we just we just hear about you know this kind of thing that this uh, mission he led um, as an emergency medical worker and it ended up um, some of his team died uh, due to some of the decisions he made and that's how he got fired and stuff. Uh, and, and it is like this kind of whole kind of redemptive story that kind of runs quite similarly to Cliffhanger. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, 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 yeah, I was going to say, like, it feels like because we've we've talked about as well where um in the 90s it was like you had specialist and then assassins which they feel like it is the same character and same plot elements in a way and then um yeah as you were just saying with those two and then you have demolition man then kind of merging into judge dread yeah and so and they have it a lot feels, of mirrored plot yeah, elements yeah that's it so <laughs> it's just interesting kind of watching them as a as a run together and seeing these kind of mirrored elements kind of throughout and uh like yeah, how there's these themes that run through different periods of his career, and this is very much these strong themes that uh, run through this kind of uh, '90s patch. But um, yeah, I, and like, before we before we get into the plot of the movie, you know, like I did want to talk a little bit about how many times have you seen this movie? Had you seen this movie before before watching it for the podcast? So I watched it when it first came out. Um, I think on VHS because my parents rented it. And then it's the same as we talked about, but not to the same extent, I guess, as Assassins for the last episode where I've caught clips of it every couple of years or when it's on TV, but never enough. enough. Whereas Assassins, I would just, I would, would be more willing to leave it on and just watch, watch it through to the end, which I'd always come in by the time they were in. Um, Puerto Rico where this it's like a come in like at I don't even remember like the point where um, he has to blow up the the water section to stop the flooding mm. like it'll be little bits like that but um, and then what I also realized <laughs> is how much um, how I guess old we're getting or how dated we're getting and not mm-hmm. realizing it because I'm like, oh yeah, I only watch, I watched, I must have watched that in its entirety only a few years ago. And then thinking back, like, oh, 20 years ago or <laughs> more. Yeah, I would be the same. I think I probably, I can't remember if I rented it or caught it on TV, but I, I'd probably be around um, 12 or 13 when, when I first when I first saw it and I've only seen it all the way through once before rewatching it uh, for this 
and yeah, so that's obviously a long, long time ago. You know, like I maybe caught this, <laughs> I maybe caught this in like '98 or something. So you know, like 23 years ago. <laughs> and then I've yeah. got kind of little bits of it. It's, it's weird as well because I, I feel like you know, rewatching the specialists, rewatching assassins, even while I'd, I'd only seen them all the way through, you know, once before rewatching them for the podcast, I feel like. I had remembered kind of little bits and pieces about those films in more than I remembered about this movie. I mean, essentially the thing I remembered about this movie was just the explosion at the start, like the the big tunnel explosion. And then like pretty much everything else was just a blank. But it kind of fits like that too, because there's, I don't know, there's a ton of information in the opening you know 30 40 minutes and then but it's a lot of information that either is thrown out in terms of as we've we talked about before recording in terms of character development or it's or plot elements or then the rest of the movie in itself just kind of blurs through a scene or scene after scene of trying different things to escape or you know and that's it becomes this like big blur of stuff even watching it you know last night when i did for this recording it's still probably going to be difficult for me to be like oh yeah you know know the scene by scenes when it happened well luckily i watched it this morning so hopefully i've taken accurate like yeah it does get less and less memorable as the movie goes on but we'll we'll talk we'll we'll talk about we'll try and remember as best we get i i think we've we've got this you know like i've I've taken good enough notes i'm sure you have too we've got this okay so let's 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 start and um so we open with uh some fun whooshy credits that go through a kind of cgi tunnel and then we get the big title card daylight and uh, then we cut to our opening scene where the CEO of, well, he's probably not the CEO, the foreman of Evil Inc. um, is doing a dodgy deal with a dodgy contractor to get rid of uh, some toxic waste. And uh, yeah, and it's it's funny as well, because like they're taking the Holland Tunnel to New Jersey. And my thought was, you know, like this toxic waste is going to Tromaville because that's what this opening scene seemed to me of this in terms of its general campiness. Yeah. And it feel and yeah, for those that have seen it before and are or will watch it because of this podcast, it does not fit with the rest of the movie, except one other scene that we <laughs> talked about before recording that also feels like it came out of a trauma film. And yeah, it's it's very on the nose. It's like taking all this toxic waste from New York to New Jersey. And then it feels like a setup that isn't even necessary. You could just have an explosion, I feel. But I don't know why that plot element is in there. (laughs) But it is. Yep. I I mean, to be fair, it was, it entertained me. So, you know, like maybe, maybe it was worth the addition. But like, yeah, it does not need to be there. We could have just... I mean, a bunch, I suppose, about, you know, I, I suppose it's kind of, we're given just a little bit of character development 
in these kind of opening scenes like coming up where we, we kind of meet all the characters but yeah this kind of section we don't really need that much but it's here anyway um, but then like basically yeah. we get the introduction to all our survivors all the, all the people who are going to survive the disaster that's going to happen very soon in this movie we get brief introductions to them all so we get a little brief introduction to George who's played by Stan Shaw we get a little brief introduction to Madeline who's played by Amy Brenneman who is like that's one of those things that makes this movie very 90s of just being like remember when Amy Brenneman was going to be a thing yeah I actually I that I had the I don't know, the whole movie watching it, I was thinking about that. Like, what happened to her? I felt <laughs> like I saw her a bunch at one point and then just didn't anymore. <laughs> well, at this point, she's like, guns are blazing. She's like, you know, she had, she'd been a big hit on the first season of NYPD Blue. She was in Heat the year before this. You know, she's in this. It, it, it seems like, a, a, you know, a rising star. And um, I don't know just tailed off i suppose went back to doing tv i think I'm yeah sure. i'm not yeah. really not sure what happened well but and then the whole um so the opening it gives this kind of we i know we talked about it prior we probably will more but it gives it's interesting enough that it kind of sets these arcs for each character where you're watching her and she's a failed playwright who is basically living in a rat infested cockroach infested new york apartment and it's just decided to leave the city you get this family they're going on a vacation a family vacation with um because it's been revealed that the father had an affair and this is like how they're going to make or this was them making amends you get this older couple who are taking their the dog which i won't spoil the reason for the dog but to a special um vet or something in um new jersey mm -hmm. and it's you know it's like all these different things where you're getting to see these characters and thinking oh well like this might be like more of this ensemble piece and we get to see all these nice little arcs or each per each character seems to have these things that they're trying to overcome or that they can overcome in this and then we'll find out as we talk more that those are kind of thrown to the wind but <laughs> you know it, it it does it does kind of have a nice i felt had a nice setup for something that could be really interesting yeah i i think like some of the characters get set up better than others like i do get that yes. the the creighton family they are given this kind of bickering dynamic um mainly caused by Steve Creighton, uh, played by J.O. Sanders, um, like the yeah, like yeah, they're set up as fine, I guess, but it's you know it's a bit kind of like yeah, I don't I don't know if it's it's the best, and then like the old couple, like their setup is just like very skimmed over. Like basically, the characters who get the best setup is George, and Madeline, and. Uh, Roy Nord, who is played by Viggo Mortensen, and is he's kind of the dick character of the movie, but he is quite an entertaining dick. And I also like that we get introduced to him at a board meeting 
and they play this like advert that they're uh, doing for their extreme sports company are very 90s of them and uh, it kind of i don't know like it kind of felt like scrooged or something you know what yeah, i mean i do even though you know he's obviously full of himself and he has these elements he's never he never which never feels like a full-on dick like the character that i think they were that type of character would normally be portrayed as you're kind of, throughout it you watch him anytime he's on screen and you're like well i mean you're kind of egotistical or you're vain but you don't actually seem that horrible you're, you seem like you're actually you're trying to help out or things like that when the you know when they get into the situation yeah i would agree with that like you know is is one of those things uh that we uh discussed before the before the podcast started that i very much thought that he was going to be or he was going to be set up to be the William Arthurton character, like William Arthurton's character in Die Hard or William Arthurton's character in Ghostbuster or, you know, that kind of thing where you're just like, Jesus Christ, this character, I just want to strangle him, but kind of isn't. He's kind of, you just kind of roll your eyes at him and go like, yeah, bit of a dick, but like, it seemed like you kind of want to help out too. So like, eh, you know, not terrible yeah so it's i guess it spends a lot of time and actually stallone's character is almost the only is brushed over the most it feels like in terms of or skimmed over where he's just the cabbie or the the chauffeur for like uh this um doctor these two doctors that are i guess at either a seminar or they were doing something and they almost get highlighted a little bit more than him i feel in those initial scenes yeah because they're having like this kind of back and forth conversation and then he just comes in for like a quick quip and then that's it like i almost feel like this scene of his introduction is just put in there just because they want him quite early on in the film because like in terms of you know this being a Stallone film you know Stallone is generally introduced straight away like the first time we see him is 10 minutes into the film and then yeah we we kind of don't see him again for a little while and then we we see him again when the disaster happens and it feels like the film would naturally introduce him when he is introduced when the disaster happens but that is even longer into the film and considering apparently this apparently his fee for this was 17 and a half million dollars which is 21 percent of its 80 million dollar budget yeah insane and but i know you know as we were also like i did i just wanted to mention this as well because i was surprised by this this movie had a budget of 80 million dollars independence day apparently (laughs) had a budget of 75 million dollars and that movie looks way bigger than this movie yeah i guess they yeah they weren't they were able to utilize their funds a little bit better instead of paying for stallone (laughs) <laughs> i suppose like they had no actors that, that would have been would have commanded that sort of fee i suppose even yeah. like will smith at the time wasn't like will smith now or you know will smith 
even like a few years from Independence Day, you know, because he had just, it was just like Fresh Prince, Bad Boys, and then Independence Day. Yeah, because I know with that one, that was kind of his attempt to what become Mr. July or whatever they used to call it, where he wanted to take on an, or a sci-fi action movie because that was kind of where the, the big money was at or that's how you, you know, he got notarized or stuff like that. So yeah, I fair enough. I mean, it worked for him. I mean, Independence Day was the biggest film of 1996. Yeah, and it did kind of blast his career into never it was, well, I guess not as much now, but for that time, for that decade-long period where he could do no wrong, it felt like, even when he weren't, when he was in movies that flop. <laughs> yeah, he just bounced back immediately. But this is not the Independence Day episode, so we'll, we'll, no. <laughs> we'll, we'll get back to talking about uh, Daylight. So, yeah, yes. let's, let's so, talk about the the other Tromaville moment of, of this movie. So we have this character who he's coming out of, it looks like a, a jeweler shop and with a case attached to his arm, and then these punks or thieves, I guess, they steal his case and then steal his car. But the punks look like, again, they're straight out of a 1980s trauma, class of Newcomb High, whatever it may be. Movie where they have the dyed, the short dyed hair and the, you know, one of them has like a face tattoo, black leather. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does feel and very it just, 1980s. Again, it doesn't fit with it. Yeah, it's like it, you know, it you would recognize these the punks because the they're movie. like, <laughs> yeah, you would recognize these punks because they are the exact sort of same punks that was in every horror stroke vigilante movie of the uh, 1980s yes <laughs> and this is 1996 so you know there it's a few years off <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, about 10 probably yeah so then they they get into this car chase and they're even warned because the car has electro or it's something where the car is has a tracker on it and they decide to swerve into the go into oh, the yeah, tunnel to kind of like escape. A, it has the, a fax machine in it. it. Like the car has a fax yeah. machine, and it, it, like uh, you know, a fax comes out and says like, "Oh, this is electronically guarded," and um, you know, the police are being notified now, kind of thing. Yeah, and the police instantly kind of jump on their tail. It's like right when they read the fax, then a cops a cop um, puts on their sirens behind them and. Yeah, and they decide to go into the tunnel, and which goes for a kind of long scene as they're heading from New York to um, to New Jersey, and they're smashing into other cars, and there's like a a cabbie who it doesn't want to let them through, and is flicking them off, and it goes on for a while, and we get to see the the con, uh, command center of the tunnel, and they're kind of where we're introduced to Grace and some of the others, and they're watching this happen, and you know, calling on people and saying that, you know, to shut down or notify the New Jersey police department or things like that. Yeah. And like, I mean, there's a, there's a bit where they, I was entertained by like some of the bits in this uh, sequence where like, for example, the, the jewelry thieves like ram a car for like no reason. They just like ram into the back of a car and then go off, you know, continuing their high speed, get away through this uh this tunnel yeah and 
it just I don't know. A lot of the elements seem seem like it was just added for more effects driven stuff. But yeah, like that ramming of the car. There were so many points in that kind of high speed chase. I was like, they're just smashing in the stuff to smash into it. They're not even like, Yeah, it didn't feel very demolition derby. Trying to get away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, these these characters definitely had like a death wish, I think. Um, but like it's quaint yeah, it's kind of fun, like uh it's kind of intercut with uh, you know the characters who are going to be our our main characters. This kind of chase, uh, you know, like we get, in, you know, randomly we get a history lesson of the Holland Tunnel when we're we're visiting the the Crichton family, and um, we get um, Madeline like singing a kind of parody version of New York, New York as she's leaving town. She's heading back to where she's from, which. I, thinks indiana or something she says later on in the film yeah i think yeah it was indiana or illinois i think it was indiana yeah right okay and um yeah uh so so that's quite fun and then and then we get the big explosion which i have to say that i mean it's it's a great effect it stands up i think you know they did it a lot of it practically um and um yeah it really still looks impressive all these years later, 25 years later. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, so the car of the trauma punks smash into the trauma <laughs> toxic ways. That, uh, why is know, there not more of these trauma stuff? characters? Uh, why, why don't we have more time with them? It's so sad. <laughs> and so that's all the trauma jabs that we can make after this point because then it shoots this wall of fire that then you watch basically go down the whole tunnel and all these cars are swerving and the survivors survive because as we talked about off air they duck i guess <laughs> yeah that's I mean, why they like, survive it, it... and not all the countless other people <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we see other cars with uh, passengers who are just like, you know, it's like Pompeii, you know, like the, these people have been vaporized and yet these survivors have, uh, yeah, they've, they've, we, yeah, we don't know how they survive. We don't know how their cars didn't melt like the many other cars and we don't know how they stayed in one piece when other people had just been literally flambéed. It's very confusing. Oh, when we were introducing the characters, um, we I suppose we forgot to mention that there is a group of uh, juvenile delinquents, uh, one of which yes. is played by um, Sage Stallone, who we previously saw in Rocky V. Uh, so there, there's a few characters. Uh, there, Vincent, uh, Kadim, and uh, Latonya, and... Um, uh, one other character I can't remember the name of right now, but um, is that the one from um, Hackers? I can't. Mikey, that's the name of the character. Yeah. Mikey, uh, played yes. by Renoli Santiago, who uh, the director had seen in uh, Dangerous Minds, uh, so that's why he was cast. Okay. And that is the same with the actor who plays Kadim um, Marcelo Thedford. He was also in the previous year's uh, film Dangerous Minds, and that's that's why they got cast. Yeah, 
And you get Gien, I don't know, they're, they're kind of skimmed over a little bit, and even the little bit that they ha- really you only get to see Sage give more of the reason why he's, I guess, a juvenile delinquent are going to juvie, and then after that, they kind of just become background characters, I feel. Yeah, that's after true. I mean, of the group, point, but Vincent's yeah. kind of the most important in terms of, like, yeah, what goes on, but, like, even he doesn't get that much to do. So, yeah, they do they, they do very much feel like they're just um, totting up the numbers. Yeah, so the explosion happens, and the whole entrance crumbles right in front of um, Kit, also known as Stallone, as he's driving these doctors and, they, you know, they slam on the brakes and he jumps out and is just like right on cue of kind of saving the day and giving commands and orders to people. And even the doctors that are, were in his car, were now helping out. They're kind of saying, I thought you were just a chauffeur, but he's giving a lot of information or, lot of commands that would suggest he is more than a chauffeur especially when uh one of the emts see him and know exactly who he is and tell tells him to get out of there because he would get arrested yes because he's it's implied that he was part of the emergency medical services but he was um fired from his job and you know that's why his friend in the the services kind of advises them to kind of get away from from the scene although i do like it's an interesting thing because throughout the movie obviously you know stallone has picked these slightly more you know character driven roles he's not wanting to be this kind of one man army kind of you know superhero action figure kind of guy and he's he's given this like it's given a, a bit more kind of weight and he's not quite, he's a, a more vulnerable character. However, he is kind of given this kind of great hero introduction in the way that he has this interaction with his, his former friend from the emergency medical services where Stallone says, where's the chief? And uh, the other guy is like, uh, says, standing right in front of me as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And, uh- <laughs> no, it's it. Yeah, I no, I agree completely, and I know it'll come up more as we kind of we mention all the many, well, at least I will, all the Poseidon adventure riffs on and stuff like that. But it seems like they're trying to set up this character that is more broken down and more of this re- redemption story. But I don't know if it's because of Stallone's ego or what that we've you know realized throughout this this season especially that like he doesn't want to be fully the you know the downtrodden character that i guess the script or the movie is trying to make him out to be yeah he seems to be in two minds because he he does kind of because he he seems to be trying to stray away from the superhero action kind of guy yeah and wants to be more grounded but he doesn't want to be too grounded. Yeah. And then, so after that, we kind of get him like arguing with the, the new chief. Who they keep calling Mr. California, I guess. Because yeah, I, I'm I assuming they brought him the West Coast. From <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't see, since he's a West Coast person, he doesn't know the area like 
Kit does, and because Kit knew back in 1994, they did a simulation that the only way to secure the tunnel if, some, if a terrorist attack was to happen in there, that they would have to blow certain beams or things like that. But Mr. California, new chief, doesn't want to listen, and it costs him. <laughs> well, yeah, it costs him in a big way. I this is the kind of third and kind of last really cartoony scene before the more serious, more melodramatic tone of the movie kind of comes in, where Mr. California, as he is referred to uh, a couple of times, he is is talking to the, a female uh, EMT uh, called Bloom, and uh, she she comes out of like this uh, little tunnel and and says like basically, oh no, it can't be done. Uh, can't it, you know we can't do it that way we need to find another way and um, then Mr. California says the person who says it can't be done is interrupted by the one who just did it and then walks into the tunnel and it immediately collapses <laughs> and kills him yeah well and what's so great about it afterward is so um, Kit isn't there to find out that he's been killed but when it's when it's revealed to him later there's like no remorse on any of that crew member they're just like oh he was pancaked is that how they phrase it <laughs> like nobody a... apparently cared about this new chief oh dear and we should point out that the guy who says he was pancaked is a character called frank craft and frank craft is played by character actor dan hadea and in a kind of weird theme that is growing with the podcast, we have covered actors who regularly play villains not in villain roles. So we had the incidents of uh, Powers Booth in Rapid Fire, turned out to be not a villain, and Michael Rooker in uh, Cliffhanger, um, nice guy um, in Cliffhanger. And and here's yeah. Dan Hedaya, um, again, I saw him in the credits and I was like, ah, he's, he's probably some sort of uh, corrupt officer or some sort of, you know, something. Yeah. Uh, but no, no, like, I mean, he, he was the one who got stolen fired, but he had reason for that and he kind of feels guilty about it. And it seems like he's just a friend and just a uh, good guy, wants to help out. Yeah. I mean, he's the one who wants the loan back, saying that, you know, he's the only one that could really do it. And yeah. <laughs> there we go. It's interesting as well, because there is like a, a bunch of these kind of side characters who are got kind of, who played by kind of decent kind of character actors, like uh, the kind of guy who's the head of the control room, the, the character Norman Bassett, is, is played by Barry Newman, who people may recognize as Kowalski from cult classic 1970s film Vanishing Point. And you've probably seen him in a bunch of other stuff. He's, a, he's got a very recognizable face, does Barry Newman. Yeah. And oh, so I guess, what did we met? Um, so, as part of kind of some of that, because I know it'll pop up and it pops up a bunch now, or well, until I guess even the end, and we forgot to mention is that the, the officer, George, he is in a relationship with Grace, who's in the control room, and he has um, her bracelet that she left from the night before. So there's a whole scene that um, 
isn't foreshadowing at all. I don't <laughs> feel like that it, he says that he's going to give her the bracelet after his shift and that he has something special he really wants to tell her and she wants to hear it now but he says she'll have to wait and just the way it's delivered yeah you can kind of tell it's not going to end up well for george (coughs) yeah because they kind of really hammer home of just being like oh tell me now no i can't i'm not going to tell you now oh go on you know it's going to be a much better day if you just tell me now no no i'm not going to tell you now i'm going to tell you tonight and you're like oh well poor george he's not going to see the end of this movie yeah but in terms of like so george is kind of the one going around the tunnel kind of checking for survivors and we see him like meet up finding uh, a bunch of uh, different survivors because he's the one who he first bumps into roy and he finds uh, the the old couple that are are played by uh, um, uh, Claire Bloom and uh, Colin Fox, and um, yeah, so he he finds a bunch of people. Does he find the family, the Creighton family as well? I can't remember. I thought he, or it doesn't show it, but I think he does. I think it's they're just they end up being there with another group or something. Like you don't actually see it if I remember correctly. Yeah, that because group, it shows yeah, them find the older couple. Yeah, tells them he says stay here, so then I I'll know where you're at on my way back. And then it's he finds Nord, um, which uh, Vigo Mortensen, Nord, his care, his driver, and I guess friend, I guess died in the blast. But you know, he gets out and he's told, and he's basically he has all this gear in his Hummer that he grabs. And kind of says that he was born free, or that he's going to find a way out, and he's determined that he was six months premature, or six months, six weeks six, premature six weeks. because he couldn't <laughs> even stay. Yes, <laughs> six months he premature. <laughs> wow, yeah. that that would be really something. If <laughs> yeah. If he was born at three months and, uh, and still survived, uh, that's that's pretty amazing. But yeah, I like so that is again uh, one of I, again a lot of my kind of favorite stuff in the movie kind of happens in the kind of first uh, forty to forty-five minutes. Um, so much like I like the line about you know the the person who says it can't be done is interrupted by the one who just did it. I also like that line about him being six weeks early and um, that he would, you know, he, he, you know, to, just to uh, show how, kind of how irrepressible he is, you know, and the way he says, my own mother couldn't keep me in. And if that's, you know, if that was true, then nothing can stop me, basically, which uh, was pretty fun. Yeah, and it does, it is a shame, as we will kind of talk about more, especially with George, is in this beginning bit, they set him up as a pretty substantial character and he mm-hmm. has kind of this arc or whatever, even with the foreshadowing. But then I felt like when Stallone comes in, he kind of just becomes this, like he loses a lot of that, I guess, momentum or he loses that like significance. He just ends up becoming just another, um, you know, casual, you know, not a casualty, but another survivor in the group. Yeah, I mean, Stallone kind of sucks the ear out of the rest of the group in a way once he kind of comes in because he does very much become the main character up until this point like 
uh, we have this kind of going back and forth between control and the tunnel and it does feel like at this point pretty much George and Madeline are on equal footing with Stone's character's kit you know like it seems like yeah. they're kind of given an, an equal amount of uh, waiting to those characters but you know as soon as Kit gets into the tunnel then he very much becomes the main character. Yeah and so while, while they're in the control room it's basically all of the options have been you can't get in except through this through the ventilation system but the only way to keep them alive because of all the toxic fumes they have to keep the fans going so that they can do a quick shutdown which again just feels like just for the special effects portion but it is you know it's fun in that sense that he has to go through each fan and each fan will kick on or re-kick on 30 seconds after the other so it's like him trying to squeeze through these fan blades into the next one yeah before, before they of, start back up before again. we kind of yeah before we kind of yeah. get into that though like I, I did want to kind of cut back a little bit because yeah. we get kind yeah. of, of we get kind of one of Madeline's kind of big hero moments because she is the one who finds the the kind of police van the overturned police van uh, with the delinquents and uh, they're kind of locked in the back of the van obviously and then she has to get a you know, she plucks up the cars to kind of grab the keys and unlock them and, uh, you know, like, they all come out of the van, uh, apart from the character of Mikey, uh, who's kind of too scared to, to come out of the van and she's trying to <laughs> yeah, she's trying to appeal to his perviness because she's like, do I look pretty? Does she look pretty? Don't you want to come out with the pretty girls? <laughs> yeah, she also does the like, oh, I'm scared too. If you were out here with me, that's why you should come here and like keep me safe. I don't know. Stuff like that. Yeah. And, and just, then Latonya and then just shouts at him and that works. <laughs> yeah. And she says, you have to be tough on these kids. <laughs> <laughs> and then just fucks off. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's outside the van, there's this kind of large hanging uh, electronic wire. And it's it's just it stops them coming out the van. Like Latonia gets out the van, but it swings down and it's now kind of hanging in front of the van doors. And uh, neither Mikey nor Madeline know what to do. But then Madeline is like kind of thinking, "Oh, what do you do with electrics? You know, like uh, you know, in terms of like conducting or you know whatever." And it's like, oh, and then she kind of hits on it. It's like, oh rubber we need you know like so she takes her shoes off and grabs the electric wire with the soles uh over over boots uh so that so that yeah. mikey um can get out and at the same time george is trying to wave to mission control to to cut cut the power and Again, we get like a kind of big hero moment uh, from Stallone because apparently everybody in the control center is an idiot not looking at the fucking screens that they're paid to look at. Yeah. And literally Yeah, they're says, all just kind of sitting there talking. Yeah, he literally says, anybody watching these monitors? And everybody's like, no, actually. Well, oh, wait, hang on. People are shouting at them. Yeah. 
So yeah, if anything, what we find out is that like the control room and then it's like all politics for everybody else. You know, we'll get into it later on with the engineers and just like, well, even if there are survivors, oh well, we gotta keep this structure, you know, going so we can use it again. Yeah. It's kind of weird though because like some characters are set up in a certain way and then immediately become something else because so after is anybody watching these monitors moment um he is then uh, debating with uh, barry newman's character um norman and norman seems like he's being entirely obstructive and being like oh well weren't you fired and like he he looks like he's a kind of character who is going to be one of those kind of bureaucratic characters getting in the way of Solon's big rescue mission but then like literally in the next scene he's like being entirely helpful they bring out the kind of miniature they've got of the tunnel and he's kind of pointing out like oh these are the entrance points and oh this is you know this is that and being just entirely supportive yeah no that's actually that's one of my notes which I was going to get into later which you even feel with some of the most of the survivors, I guess, besides George, where it's like one scene, they're they're so angry at Kit and he's not doing anything right and they're not going to follow him. And then, you know, and they're flipping each one. And then the next scene there, that certain character who is very distant is now like, oh, well, we need to follow Kit. It's the only way out and things like that. And then the next scene, they're yelling, you know, that person is yelling at him again or hates him or whatever it may be. And so there's really no, I guess, straight art with even the, you know, Father Stephen and his wife, like they have that where it's like they don't like Kit and then they do kind of, and then the wife no longer likes him. Yeah, I don't know how to, (laughs) it's like, what is going on here with all these characters? Yeah, those characters in particular the you know the, the the that family um they flip-flop the most like it is very confusing like those characters uh the the, the husband and wife uh, sarah and steve yeah they, they you know they they flip-flop from steve flip-flops from, from being very angry to being like the kind of stolid kind of like i'm gonna help out and sarah seems entirely reasonable and then entirely hysterical, and then, you know, like, goes back and forth between that. It's very confusing, yeah. Like, um, there's other characters who are inconsistent, but, like, probably not as severely as as those those two characters are the worst offenders of just being, like, from scene to scene, you do not know what you're getting. Yeah, and I felt like, you know, I I get the point that, well, they're the only ones there with a small child. So they're going to be hysterical or they're going to have pushback or stuff like that. I get the the notion. But then there was the part just watching it. It's like, man, just get rid of them already or something. Because (laughs) they're the only, by far the only ones that I was like, I I just don't know. Everybody, they're just all yelling for no reason now and they're giving pushback for no reason yeah 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 for sure for sure i like um yeah it just seems like the script was like oh we need a little bit extra antagonism to spice up this scene it, it doesn't seem to come from anywhere other than that it was just being like yeah this will add a bit more drama yeah <laughs> and 
So Nord finds uh, what they're called are wormholes, and he decides he's going to basically find a path for them to go to get to the surface. But during that time, um, they're learning about, or Kit is learning about how to get in and doing that he has to go through the fan that I was mentioning prior. And they're kind of, it's very scattered, but Madeline is on the radio with, um, with Kit and he's warning her, don't let Nord go in there because it's very unstable, but she doesn't, she's unable to hear any of that part, part of it. Um, but yeah, so you're getting kind of these cut back and forth between that for a bit, just like most of this, where you're getting most of the beginning where it's like a lot of frantic cut, cut back, backs and forth where I think it kind of, it helps with that tension. I'd say I'll give it that much. Like the, the scatteredness of it. Yeah. I think actually, to be fair, I am, I've just realized, I don't think we ever actually mentioned that eventually they did turn the power off and uh, Madeline was, was fine. Oh yes. (laughs) (laughs) We kind of talked about that scene and then talked about what was happening in the control room, but didn't talk about the kind of denouement of that scene of like, oh yeah. And they cut the power off and, and the survivors survived another day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's just after her. <laughs> That would have been a The better. audience might be assuming that. Wait, wait, what's happened to her? Was she fried? Was it like... <laughs> yeah. But I have to say, like, in terms of, like, cutting back again to this moment with uh, Kit going through these series of fans, which, interestingly, kind of mirrors the scene in Judge Dredd, although that's just one big fan that he goes through in that film. He he looks like he's going to run through another one, but then he like just ducks through the, the floor because he has to save Rob Snyder's stupid ass. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, again, I just thought about that because, you know, more fan action but like this seems real good like part of yeah part of the problem of this movie is like this scene and the explosion scene at the start are the two most exciting things that happen and they happen within the first kind of 45 minutes yeah but if you want to agree if yeah if you want to go through the you know what what happened because it's like it's quite a complicated uh, system that the, the, the of, of you know like seen um so if you want to go through like what actually happens in this action scene because it's not just one big fan that he goes through no so the concept is once they shut off the fans that he has it's like a minute before they'll the system will start up again so and then it's every fan after that and there's four fans i think it they'll start 30 seconds after the the prior fan so they the power gets shut off but the fans are still going because of the momentum so they have to use a like this big wrench basically and shove it in there and that kills all of the time for the first i, guess, I have the put first in my fan, notes so uh, much so that i have put in my notes fan stock by world's largest spanner yeah <laughs> that thing was like comically yeah, they, huge i was like that's amazing yeah yeah they shove it into the the belt the fan's belt and then yeah it gets to the point that the timer gets so low that he just has to jump through so he's able to jump through onto the next set of fans and what you start seeing is like, the fans are because of the momentum they're still kind of turning and he's on top of them and he's you know and you see the countdown of 30 seconds for each for whatever 
fan and so he squeezes through one and then falls onto the next one and then it has him squeeze through another one but this time his radio gets caught so he has to basically cut his radio off to squeeze through or you know he'd be sliced up so and then finally the third one he has to squeeze through but then hook the the tether to it but to the center but he's unable to so he just has to hook it to one of the fan blades itself which adds for a kind of interesting effect so once he squeezes through and he's on this rope the rope is spinning causing him to spin more and like crash around the sides of this you know big cylinder so he has to like start running with the fan as he's like descending into this um into the hole basically yeah which then gets them into um, where all the fans are blowing and like slammed up against this wall and having because of all the air and having to climb out then place a charge on a on a um, the door because he's unable to open it and i i thought it was quite funny because as cheesy as it is and as over the top as it is that each fan beside each fan there's these giant digital timers clock down you know countdown timers um it does actually add to the tension of the scene yeah but what i was curious about is they make it like oh well this is the only way to get in but Mm -hmm. then i guess as we talked as we were discussing off air was this concept of like when it the plot is sillier in these disaster films like it's more logic stuff or is more forgivable and when it's more serious then you start noticing it more and that's what i guess i was noticing of so wait the fans are the only way to get through yet you have this machine you know this electronic equipment in between each fan and you have like these doors and stuff so how do the people if get up there like wouldn't there be another path to get to these points because somebody would have to program this stuff and i don't know so that's yeah where my the logic affected me <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's true i think um there's some films uh, like i would go against you and, and be like oh well you, you know you're just on a hiding to nothing craig you know trying to put these logic points but yeah. i'm kind of, kind of with you because in the, in this this movie does have a slightly more it has a goofy tone to start with kind of there's these goofy moments that we talked about the kind of three big moments that we kind of talked about that are definitely the goofiest moments in the movie but it definitely as i kind of we were talking about off air this is definitely more deep impact than armageddon you know like it's generally played as a a, a relatively serious melodrama uh, instead of like an out and out kind of silly uh, action or even though it has like you know over the top action beats within it yeah but yeah so this is kind of where we get the first pushback for no i felt like for no reason so the charge blows and he because of he was so close to it he's you know just dis- disoriented and he can't really hear well at first and so he comes out of of the great and everybody's asking him questions and they start like they're kind of really mean to him. Like here's the guy that came in to save them with the team and they're upset that he's the only one there. And they're like, well, we're not even going to listen to you, Mr. Expert. We're going to listen to, you know, the, uh, to Nord because he's going to get us out of this. And they're, yeah, they get to the point that they're even hostile with them. That uh, one of the characters tries to put him in a chokehold saying that he's not the one in charge and, 
yeah it just feels yeah aggressive for no reason i guess <laughs> <laughs> I, i've literally i literally put in my note kit explodes manhole everyone shouts at him <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and yeah what you see he is attacked by kadim who is is really is the biggest fan of Roy Nord and really believes in Roy's ability, his climbing ability, you know, because he's seen those extreme sports adverts. So he knows he's a real good climber. And uh, yeah, he just, he's just like, um, you're not the boss around here and, and kind of stops him because he, Kit wants to go in to kind of stop Roy climbing where he's climbing because Kit knows that going to that part of the tunnel is, is going to crumble is going to come down on Roy's head at any second. Um, but yeah, Kadim just doesn't want to, to let him in. And Sly seems kind of consigned to it. He's just like, yeah, sure, if you want to be the boss, you're the boss. And uh, even when the guy attacks yeah. him, he doesn't really attack back. It's, it's George who puts him in a chokehold and, and lets Kit uh, go and talk to Roy. Yeah, yeah. And well, that even pops up. I don't know, there's so many moments where you'd feel like in other movies, he would have either been aggressive or hit the guy, like especially with Steven at points, but he never does. He's just kind of, which I guess is a good kind of character element, but yeah, he that happens and then he goes into the tunnel, which Vincent quickly scurries and follows him and all these other, and everybody wants to basically go in and just follow um, Kit because they're frantic and they just want to get out and they think that's the easiest that's going to be the way out even though kit the, the professional has clearly said <laughs> that no it won't be it's definitely and again nobody apparently they believe yeah but uh roy yeah, definitely uh, roy definitely thinks he knows what he's doing even if he he doesn't really um well he's, he's just overconfident in his abilities as you know he says that he didn't get this far you know, without having the instinct for the torque of any given ins- uh, any given situation. Um, but he did not have the torque of this given situation. No, because you see this large metal piece hanging um, from this chain at several points. And you're like, oh, it's going to snap. It's going to snap. And you're just kind of, <laughs> it, it cuts back to it a couple of times. And you're like, hey, okay, any point now gonna snap but yeah it finally um but kit he even for somebody who doesn't want to leave anyone behind as we talked about or made a joke about in the beginning he's just kind of to the point where it's like okay well good luck nord and then he just yeah he just immediately gives up on roy (laughs) yeah and And then he's like we need to go now (laughs) yeah you know he he manages to get uh, vincent out of there but he just immediately gets uh, gives up on roy and yeah i mean like we kind of discussed that the main goofiness of the movie has gone but this scene is kind of goofy as well because the way roy dies is like he falls down he notices he's basically about to get flattened by all this rubble he like puts his hands on his hips spits out his gum and is just kind of resigned to it of being like <laughs> i fucked up fair enough <laughs> yeah and then you don't even really see any you just see all the stuff just smashed down and that's it <laughs> yeah and then it, it oh, quickly like so cuts funny. to Kit and Vincent scurrying out of the this tunnel where they have to go through. And, you know, it's all crashing. And it's about to explode. And 
this is the crazy part is that so Vincent gets out and Kareem he is so upset that Vincent went in first or something he's like he said something about I can't remember the exact phrase about you betrayed me or you trying to go before me and he's going to hit him with a rock yeah <laughs> until so him and so Kit and Vincent move out of the way and then just a big explosion and golf of fire shoot out of the out of the little hole sending cream like flying into a wall and it's not just like an uh the wave of the explosion it's full on like the fire everything just like shoots them into the wall <laughs> yeah and this is where we get into the logical issues again because not only should kadim be flambéed but also like the way he is propelled into the opposite tunnel wall his spine should have basically been snapped in half and yet and also like he is also impaled by a metal pole at the same time and yet yeah. he is surprisingly intact i mean he dies seconds later fair enough but he sh he should have already been very very dead already he shouldn't have had like a, a death scene yeah. where we get so a mini moment of melodrama with uh shit to do with his bad relationship with his dad because the old guy is saying like oh i'll tell your dad you died like a hero and like the last thing that kadeem says is like he won't believe it and then he's he croaks it and yeah. it's one of those things of like as we'll discuss further there's a bunch of melodramatic moments in this movie and it, it's made to be real melodramatic like they really lay it on thick with randy edelman's uh piano score and you know the way yeah. it's you know the way it's directed and everything you know they they're really like aiming for people to be tearing up in this scene but it's just some of the melodramatic moments later on in the movie kind of work uh this is not one of the melodramatic moments that works and there is a bunch of them that are kind of like yeah we just don't care we don't know enough about this character and you know like maybe if we had heard about his dad before or like we'd been given anything about this character before yeah no i agree i think it i don't know it's just one of those things where like, if it would have happened later on in the movie his death then yeah it might have worked what they were intending to do but it yeah it doesn't <laughs> I love as well that he'd been like, uh, you know, he's been caught up in this fireball and yet the only kind of major after effect of the fire is the fact that his orange jumpsuit is now kind of covered in kind of smoke stains. That's pretty much it. Yeah. That is the extent of the fire damage that has been done to him. Yeah. But and then um, after you would think, okay, well, Kit warned everybody, so obviously, why would, or we should listen to this man now, but no, people are still kind of very hesitant to listen to him. Yes, basically, and this is where then it comes out, is where Sarah knows kind of about his scandalous history, even though she only knows what the tiny bit of the headline said, that he got some people killed. And so she's upset saying she doesn't want to, why would anybody want to follow him if he got people killed? And again, the back and forth goes too much because then Stephen is, gets so upset by it and is yelling to the point that then Sarah's like, calm down, Stephen. Well, you just, you, you set it up. 
<laughs> yeah, but yeah. It's, it's, they... it's at this point that the the tunnel uh, starts to flood, and we yes. there's like a weird moment as well where Kit is talking about dangers of of hypothermia. And then one character, I think it's Latonia, is like, what's hypothermia? And then we get an explanation on hypothermia, which I was like, I don't think that's really needed for the audience. Yeah, well, you even, there's that point with uh, Maddie, or Madeline, where, like, the rubber with the electricity, you know, it's mm -hmm. like there's these moments where you feel, like, so is this supposed to be kind of, I know some of these um, disaster movies, they try and do that, where it's educational, too. In the sense of, well, if this it we're showing kind of a dramatized version of what really could happen. So here's some information because even that scene going back is like her talking to herself and explaining, oh, when lightning strikes, if you're in your car, it won't affect it because oh, it's rubber, rubber of the tires. That means the rubber on soles, and like she's explaining that she's talking to herself out loud. Yeah, that's, there's that's several true. moments that it's like it's being explained to the audience yeah that's that's very true and but uh after after that we we kind of get like um kit kind of gets people on side because he cuts a big inspirational speech um on top of a car and that seems to kind of get people uh on side and kind of shut people up well mainly steven up who's like the one who's doing most of the shouting at him at this point in time and then he's kind of ordering yeah. he's kind of ordering different people to do different things so he wants somebody to go to the other end of the tunnel and um like uh steven is the one he kind of nominates for some reason despite him being the most antagonistic towards us like do you want to take this job and steven's like no no i've got to protect my family which comes with some real great sarcasm from sarah who's like yeah yeah because you're so good at that <laughs> referring back to the affair that we had heard about at the start of the movie which i thought was quite fun yeah and so george yeah ends up going and pretty much up and from now on the only information george gives the information saying that the jersey side is uphill so um, all the water that is coming in would be going towards the um the new york side so if they want to kind of yeah so if they want to out i guess or stay out of the water longer they would want to go towards jersey and yeah yeah and it's kind of that's a tiny bit of what his character i guess becomes once, as we were talking about before, once Stallone comes in, like he does that, he gives a little bit more information later on, and that's kind of it for him in this weird way. Yeah, pretty much. And then we get a scene of like apparently, even though she she, she doesn't really help out that much, but um, Kit apparently really needs somebody to go with him to set this explosion off that he's going to set off to kind of stem the foot not stop the flooding stem the flooding and uh, he says that madeline is the woman for for the job uh, because he saw what she did uh, with the, the the rubber soles grabbing the, the the big electronic wires so like he he knows that she's got the guts for it and madeline's uh, doesn't seem quite so convinced and then we get a scene of them sitting on top of a car where 
Madeline is babbling on about why she can't help Kit. And then it feels like, I don't know, I watched this in, in the UK on Netflix, and I do not know if on your Blu-ray uh, the cut is quite so weird, but it seems like basically there is an edit that cuts Madeline and Kit off mid-conversation, and then we cut to two guys looking at a blueprint of the tunnel who turn out to be city engineers. Okay, so did you get the oyster conversation? Uh, yeah, got the oyster conversation, but the oyster conversation okay. comes after the de debate between EMS and the civil the civil engineers. Okay, so I the version that I watched, I didn't. I don't know. Maybe I I don't think I stepped away, but no. The only thing, the only scene I got regarding that was I think a little bit later, and it was when there was the I can't remember if it was the mayor or whoever where they're arguing with her, and she's saying, you know, the engineers. Or who call the shots? So we gotta start digging. But there's nothing about um, no engineer scene. It was basically he's convincing Madeline with the oyster thing, and it goes right into so them what happens is setting like, up the bomb. Yeah. So what happens is Frank, the Frank and the 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 female EMS officer that we saw earlier, Bloom, they're sitting about, and it's two civil engineers, and then. I didn't read that woman as being the mayor. I just thought she was the head of city engineers or she was the head of the engineer people and she gave oh, the ruling. Yeah, I, that, yeah, I didn't know. So that happens. So the, the in between them talking on the car, uh, then that scene happens and it cuts back to them and then he gives the, the Roy Oyster analogy, which was quite fun. Yeah. Okay. So then, yeah, I think it was the the same, but I don't, yeah, the cut didn't seem too bad on my version. I, ju I don't know. It just Blu-ray seemed like it I... abruptly went to, it abruptly moved to that scene. I, like it seemed abrupt to me, but um, it's a minor point. It's not something to dwell on, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. I I should mention as well. Uh, one thing that we didn't mention, and this is an, another way that the movie mirrors Cliffhanger, because this movie is also a movie that is filmed mainly in Italy, pretending to be America. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so, fortunately for them, it's basically all interior. <laughs> yes, it is, it is basically all interior. So, like, yes. So, Cliffhanger, pretending to be Colorado mainly filmed in the Dolomites. This film, pretending to be the Holland Tunnel in New York, and is mainly filmed, yeah, on a on a sound stage in Cinecita Studios in Rome. 90% of this film uh, was filmed um, in Cinecita Studios in Rome. There is a couple of parts, a couple of minor uh, parts that, that were filmed in, in New York, New York and New Jersey. Okay. So just okay. another way it yeah. kind of weirdly I... mirrors Cliffhanger. <laughs> 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 the last way as well so like the the last way is stallone was getting over a fear because like um on cliffhanger you know before he filmed cliffhanger he said he had a fear of heights and in this film um he also had fear of like uh enclosed spaces and and you know dark enclosed spaces and like going underwater and the director convinced him to do this despite those fears 
because he had read up on him having the fear of heights before uh, filming Cliffhanger. So he used the same argument of like, oh, you can get over these fears just like you go over that fear in Cliffhanger. <laughs> That's the last way it kind of mirrors Cliffhanger. Oh, uh, well, and I, in some of the behind the scenes stuff, um, Stallone really, it makes sense now when I was watching them, that Stallone really focused on t- discussing that for his character, it's about like overcoming certain fears or trying to stay, you know, stay calm and do what's right despite having all these fears. So I get, yeah, it makes more sense him because he kept reiterating it and some of the um, um, little featurettes that I was watching on it. So now I know why, because he was actually afraid of it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Apparently he said to, to Rob Cohen that he, he doesn't like water. He doesn't like the dark. He doesn't like enclosed spaces. <laughs> Boy, so, so much of the movie is him in the water. <laughs> it's all in one big enclosed space. Exactly. So, so there you go. So, um, but yeah, so we get this with Madeline, this royster, raw oyster part where he's trying to convince her that she can do it by saying, do you or think about the first person that ate a raw oyster like they must have been really hungry because you know it's slimy it's like you'd have to break it open you'd have all these kind of elements of what would even drive a person to eat a raw oyster and then um again unless you're really hungry and so that's his big convincing her of saying you know you can do this because you have to not because you want to or because whatever but you're the type of person that if you're in a situation like this you can do it i guess yeah it's basically yeah. the the gist that, that of that whole long conversation he tells yeah absolutely and it's an interesting kind of character moment here as well because so he goes up he sets the explosive they come back down and then the kind of wire attached to the explosive it kind of gets tangled and he has to like untangle it and he doesn't know if he can do it in time and he basically tells Madeline to you know run run away as quickly as possible and then she's like no 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 but what about you and he says the hell with me and it's interesting because like you know, I mean this this character seems like depressed the, the character doesn't seems like he kind of yeah. doesn't doesn't care about his own life he just cares about kind of saving the lives of these people and kind of making amends for the lives that were lost in this previous mission that we've we've not seen but we we hear about throughout the movie yeah no and that's what i think we were kind of discussing prior is that it feels like you know again they have them they show these kind of really big hero moments and then uh, we were talking off air because for a small period of time i watched uh, beside adventure it was like one of my background movies when i do homework or whatever for some reason i don't even know why i don't think i don't like it that much but put it on (laughs) but you know it was like it you could see the similarities between what his character is and then the character of like gene hackman and yeah then they have these kind of hero moments to make him a you know the stallone savior again but you almost feel like if they kept it with that him just trying to find redemption and his you know not even thinking that his life was worth anything it would it would have made for a more that would be one of those elements to like make it more grounded or make it more i guess work with what tone they were going for better if it's just about this guy trying to redeem himself yeah because we get this kind of big depressed moment and then two seconds later we get like a big hero moment 
where he manages to outrun a rolling tanker that's like and then and, and then saves madeline in one fell swoop and you know and, and feels like uh you know kind of super heroic again yeah so and then after that isn't that right where we kind of get the george bit too do we yes. go right so into that george george is like comes one? back <laughs> yeah george comes back from from his mission and he he's all excited and then the basically what this you know engineers have been talking about about like kind of drilling into the tunnel kind of making the assumption that there is no survivors or you know nobody's nobody's going to survive this they probably can't get out and you know we don't want to cause a big traffic jam in new york so like fuck these people is basically the decision and then they, they drill into it and then part of the tunnel falls apart and uh, George gets caught up in that, and then he is basically pinned down by a, a pickup truck that kind of basically falls on top of him. Um, and uh, but this is one of those weird things, which in in terms of like what we've been talking about before of uh, character consistency, of like suddenly yeah we have, and it's supposed to feel like this real kind of big feel-good moment and it kind of does but it kind of doesn't make sense at the same time because suddenly the group completely unifies everybody is absolutely on the same page and everybody really cares about George even though most of them don't really know him at all and it's like yes let's save George let's all work together I, I was also entertained by the fact that like um Sloan's character uh, does try to lift the pickup truck himself. Uh, think, yeah. <laughs> thinking he could do that, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that. So, George, from what we know by this point, is that his. You don't know how hurt he is, but you can assume that either his back is broken or something because he can't feel the rest of his body. And um, yeah, so um, Kit grabs a hose too, and the water is basically starting to go over them and he puts the hose in george's mouth and is telling them to stay there and then yeah everybody comes in and they all lift it up together and they're able to get them up and it's like playing the music and exactly like you said it's supposed to be this really good feel moment and my big issue and we talked about this again before was that it's instantly well not instantly but a couple within a couple of scenes it feels like that moment was then purposeless or wasted or it, it, it turns sour because it's yeah. like you give all of this and this big unifying thing and then um which we'll get to and we can talk about more <laughs> when we get to that scene but yeah for sure for sure which which is not that far away but it's kind of undone kind of almost immediately in a way as well because we get a scene of like kit talking to madeline a bit more about the way he was fired and that how that whole mission went south. And then we get a bunch of the characters just kind of haranguing Kit before he, he kind of formulates a plan of like kind of like, oh you you gave us you gave us false hope and then no hope, you know, you know, it's the thing that um like uh, Sarah says who who is now completely hysterical. You know, before she seemed a relatively reasonable character. I mean previously when she was kind of haranguing kit it was just kind of like oh you're that guy who had that failed mission i've heard about you but now she's just in complete hysteria um so her character's kind of 
yeah. flipped and um well yeah and it, and it goes to the point of so not only that her daughter or danielle who's played by danielle harris which horror fans oh, we should have from. we should have mentioned that scream uh, queen daniel harris yeah. <laughs> yeah she like even apologizes for her parents to kit of like you know they were wrong please just save us stuff like that but yeah it's sarah almost becomes more insufferable than Stephen was prior. Like Stephen was just yelling and all of that, whatever prior. And then Stephen almost becomes where he's like becomes Kit's right hand man in some weird way, even though he's not and not at all. But um, then Sarah is just kind of mean. <laughs> like she's just <laughs> given up in a way, and she's just rude about everything. Yeah, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah, because like. It is weird because, like you say, you know, Stephen, you know, played by J.O. Sanders, he is like this kind of swaggering macho dickhead who's like competing with Kit to be top alpha in earlier scenes. And then, and now he's just kind of like, oh, yeah, Kit's a great guy. You know, I'm anything to help Kit. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> But I, I, so yeah, it's just, it's just weird the kind of character motivations of they just kind of skip to, from one thing to the next um, without, without any kind of connective tissue. It's just, yeah, and, and so we get all that. He goes ahead and he finds because he finally he talks to George who said, um, which we didn't, which I guess wasn't too big of a deal but way early on when they were looking at the structure there were some bunkers for people when they would do like the 36 hour shifts that they could go and sleep and eat and everything in the tunnels and but those have all been sealed off is kind of what has been said but kit remembers that information and asks george where you know if he remembers any sort of like latches or i mean or hatches or kind of hidden tunnels or stuff like that that he would know about and george says that booth three which kit goes down there and he's able to find the this um basically this bunker that was used for napping or eating or whatever that of course has a giant crucifix to like i don't know give the themes more and stuff like that of hope and everything <laughs> but yes i like again i feel like Again, I feel like there's connective tissue there because much like Judge Dredd was inspired by the Lady Law statue, Kit here is inspired by the giant crucifixion scene and the statue of, of Jesus on, on the crucifix. And it's a, I've literally just written down in yeah. my notes, heavy-handed religious symbolism. <laughs> yeah, and it, it really is. It's not like a little thing. It pops up now several times where it's like, it makes sure the camera to show, <laughs> show this cross. <laughs> and Wait, I would be remiss it, if we did not talk about one of the other finest lines from this movie where Sage Stallone's character, Vincent, uh, yeah. says to... Daniel Harris's character. Oh, yeah. um, if we don't die in here, can I give you a call? I can't. He's going to juvie. <laughs> uh, it's kind of weird as well because it seems like he's kind of been portrayed as he's slightly like in real life. Sage Stallone, we discussed in the Rocky Five episode, sadly passed away at a very early age. But in real life, Sage Stallone's only a year older than Daniel Harris. 
but in this movie he's kind of portrayed as being a, a bit older and like Daniel Harris who was like I, I believe like almost 18 at the time something like that is there is a scene where Steve says that she's 14 so it gives it this kind of creepy vibe and she yeah. does look she does look younger even though even though the, there is literally in real life like he was born in 76 she he she was born in 77 so there's like no age difference between them but it just seems kind of weird and off because we've established in in this movie she's supposed to be 14 and it seems like in this movie he's supposed to be like 18 or something so it seems like kind of off yeah no i agree because there's the whole point where he talks about buying a car and all that i don't know it just yeah the way they play it makes it feel like he's i Older. i would have even i don't know i yeah i even thought before re- they said juvenile at one point for some reason i thought they were just even older than 18 but i don't yeah. know why because they just all look at <laughs> <laughs> even though uh, yeah i mean like, even though they weren't that old like stage Sloan would have been like 20 at the time so like you know or yeah yeah maybe when they were filming it maybe 19 but, but yeah like yeah maybe because they have him have like full ha- facial hair too which i know you know teenagers can have but it just makes them look that much older <laughs> yeah yeah it just looks like there's more of an age difference and, and i think it's just because like daniel harris is playing younger than she actually is like you know like yeah there's just that one scene where it is established that she is 14 apparently even though like she would have been 18 or 19 in real life yeah so so after he has his i guess kit has his religious experience he goes back <laughs> to tell them he tells basically tells them all to head over to booth three and he'll meet them there and they're like oh well what about george and he says well we we'll um we, we'll go check it out and then come back for george but this is kind of where as we were talking about when George, the, the scene of them saving George, it feels like it's kind of lost that power because then it's instantly him talking to George about saying, there's a way I could save these people, but you can't go that way because your neck's broken. <laughs> yeah. And then George is just kind of immediately accepting of his fate yeah, for some reason. Uh, and then, and he also gets to say the title of the movie because he goes, get them to daylight and it's like oh yeah someone said the title of the movie that's always fun isn't it (laughs) and so this is what i think you're you're talking about earlier in the podcast is saying you know there's certain deaths that you know that do work and i think this one with george it does with its melodrama where you know he's talking about they never had kids or he never you know, owned a, owned a nice car or had a wife, but he finally found this a woman he loves and he wasn't able to tell her that. And do you think she knows? Which Kit says, yeah, I think she knows. And he gives her Kit the bracelet saying to give it to her. But yeah, he knows basically that he's a goner and just to go on. And yeah, and I don't know. Basically, what I felt was if they were going to do that whole scene of him breaking his neck, and then saving him in that way, it's like it, it almost switched where in the beginning I was like, oh, okay, he's obviously going to die because of all the foreshadowing. Then that scene yeah. came along 
and it sets up this well maybe he might make it now because everybody came together to save him unless which would have been different if they let him die or if they couldn't save him and they that he died you know by drowning instantly with when the truck was on him or something yeah that's true but it could have still been a galvanizing moment for the group because they 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 tried and they they nearly did it but even if it wasn't entirely successful yeah but yeah we get more kind of character inconsistency of like so all the characters are kind of going down underwater to get to this uh to get to this bunker to to a bit of safety and i've just put in my notes steven's suddenly helpful now like because he's just kind of guiding folk down and like you know being yeah like the right hand man you know yeah yeah he's the the last one to go in make sure everybody else goes first because kit went first to kind of lead them and be the one to make sure they they come out of the water i guess and yeah, that so each one goes under, um, and then but Cooper the dog somehow gets lost underwater yeah, at some the, point. The lead, the lead snaps. The, um, the, yeah, the, 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 yeah. So uh, so Cooper possibly lost underwater, or maybe not. We shall see very soon. <laughs> but it, you know, Kit, which I thought was interesting. So Kit specifically tells everybody we're going to wait it out you know at one part but everybody should huddle together for body heat and so what does everybody do of like they all break off not huddling together for body heat. It's like <laughs> you know maybe two of them together whatever it's like yeah, why so just like the, the Crichton family they're they're right. huddling they're huddling the three of them uh the old couple are, are huddling together the two of them uh, Madeline and Kit are huddling together. Like, no, the, no, they totally don't follow the advice at all. Of like, oh no, I think Kit meant like just kind of huddle together as as one big group for kind of kind of warmth. But no, no, just stay in your own family unit. So that's that was how they interpreted uh, that message. Yeah, <laughs> and so this is the point where we kind of get a little bit more about. So um, she really wants to go find the dog, and she's upset the older woman, and it's because the dog was their um, their late son's dog, and so it's really all that they had left of their son, who we know he died in Nepal, I guess several years prior. Yeah, um, but because this information had only been given to us like minutes before this is one of those melodramatic notes that doesn't work because you're like oh these characters have been amongst the most thinly sketched the old couple are amongst the most uh, thinly sketched characters of the whole movie and then we get this information which yeah literally we've only been given like five minutes before and we're, we're supposed to really care about it and like yeah it's, it's, i suppose it's sad you know like any any parents losing yeah. their son is obviously sad you know it's just like i don't know yeah i can't yeah it, the, and uh, it feels it and it feels um like a throat some of it feels like throwaway lines too i don't know yeah very much so like um it's just kind of like it's like what we're saying earlier about the antagonism thing of like characters constantly shouting at kit and always having at least one character you know just haranguing kit you know there's certain things that it does that it feels like oh this is 
deliberately adding a little bit of extra antagonism that doesn't really make sense but it's just supposed to increase the tension of the movie and it's the same with some of these melodramatic moments where it's like oh these are supposed to be these emotional grace notes but they've not done any of the legwork for some of them some of them kind of work they yeah. don't like the moment with George because they did do a bit of legwork and even though it's kind of thinly sketched George's romance with Grace and stuff like that you know it is sketched enough and uh, Stan Shaw gives a good enough performance that it, it bleeds through you know to 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 me anyway and it works and it works yeah. and it, do, it does feel like oh you got a little bit of a frog in your throat because it's like oh man George was one of my favorite characters. I'm really going to miss George. Whereas some of the other kind of melodramatic moments, this is kind of like, ah, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not really fussed that this character has now passed away. It's, it's, I mean, sad, I guess. Yeah. Well, and even, even during that scene, so what ends up happening is the wife, you know, what you, she basically, she gets tired and falls asleep and then passes away you know from hypothermia and that too make it feel it because then immediately the water starts coming in more and the rats start coming in that like that moment is almost again i guess thrown away as well yeah like, because oh, it's yeah, like we, we just learned she's dead they gotta go and they got you know it's like yeah it's not given any room to breathe it's just like um yeah the the, the older woman eleanor is she dies and then it's like um yeah she's dead now but anyway uh plot is happening oh rats are here now wait a wait a second rats are going through a hole in the other wall oh rats no way out oh let's move this jesus statue they've gone in behind here ah way out great you know you know so we're kind of like moving on with the plot and it's just kind of like yeah 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 dead now right anyway don't care um but one of the things i wanted to know about <laughs> yeah. this scene as well is like when the rats come in and everybody freaks out and everybody's like oh my god rats and you know is trying to kind of climb up the walls to get away from the the, the rats and everybody's screaming rats rah! like sarah's nonchalance yeah. in this scene is hilarious because she has given up at this stage and she is just sitting on the steps like the rats all around her just being like you know what i've seen it all today I just don't give a fuck. <laughs> well, I mean, I was almost in the same point of like the, I don't know, there were some people, they were so, so upset with the rats, especially with like LaFon or what was her, the, hey, Latonia. The one who really, yeah, Latonia. Um, she freaks out to the point of like she jumps up on the wall. It's just hysterical. Like, wait a minute, you've seen all these explosions, all this other stuff. And these characters are more upset almost with these rats than like, yeah. all of this other stuff. That is true. The, the mean, only I, way I, it would have been more perfect for me is if like um, Sarah had somehow managed to keep a packet of cigarettes um, dry um, on her person somewhere and just yeah. like lit up a cigarette and was just like sitting on the steps just like yeah just just don't care it's just one of those days everything's gone wrong anyway so like um fuck it 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then Madeline, she convinces them or what did she say? That they shouldn't be afraid because all they are is shit with legs or something like that. Shit with legs. That's what rats are. Yep. Another classic. I mean, this movie does have some fun lines in it, I've got to say. Uh, Like, between this and the Steve Stallone's line about giving her a call and, you know, like, the Roy Oyster analogy and, you know, the, the bit about Roy, like, knowing the the tension of it, every you know given situation and 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 all that you know like and the the, the new chief Mr. California I still think Mr. California's line is probably my favorite you know about yeah. the, <laughs> about the person because the person it has not a, doing it it has yeah, such a good payoff a I suppose is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just because he's immediately flattened. Uh, right after he says the line the person who says it can't be done is interrupted by the one who just did it and he walks manfully in and is immediately killed yeah <laughs> it's possibly my favorite moment it's, in the film <laughs> yeah yeah it's up there <laughs> so they they uh, um so basically they are able to bust through and follow i guess into another room which leads to like this old wooden um, staircase where there's kind of some other equipment and the staircase is rickety, but they, which I didn't get because you could see through the little bits of light that it was a staircase. And then they have a line of like, oh, that staircase leads up <laughs> up somewhere. <laughs> yeah, all staircases would have loved <laughs> That's just more of the great writing in the, in this film. <laughs> yeah, and because they already took out some, you know, some other characters, they make sure to bring in Cooper and stuff <laughs> again. The dog randomly pops up. The dog comes back in the water, and this how this is how Kit ends up falling into the water um, because he has to to go and rescue the dog because we can't let the dog die. God forbid that we let the dog die. Yeah. I mean, Eleanor already died. You can't have Roger lose lose Eleanor and his dog and his son, which we just learned about. Yeah, which we learned about five minutes before. Uh, So, like, yes, you know, like, uh, it would just be too much, too much for one life. So, like, yes, the dog has to survive. And then, I mean, this was a kind of classic period of, like, um, I mean, generally... People don't like when animals die in movies, but um, I think yeah. there, there's some particularly hilarious examples. I think there's actually I've not watched Dante's Peak in a long time, but reading about this movie, apparently there is, there is a similar scene in Dante's Peak where Leslie Bohm obviously had certain motifs, um, you know, like uh, so there is a very similar scene, and I think one of the most hilarious scenes of a dog uh, surviving in a movie is where in Independence Day the dog jumps out of the way of that fireball in the in the tunnel in the in the, the road tunnel um so um yeah but again I suppose this is not the Independence Day episode as we mentioned earlier <laughs> yeah so I can confirm yeah because since I bought the um the dual pack with a blu-ray of um this of Daylight and Dante's Peak my 
wife and I, we just, we watched Dante's Peak the night before. Right. And yeah, there's the scene where the dog is missing for a long period of time. And then they're driving at one point and it's just like standing on this little rock as the lava is coming down and they're able to get it to jump into the, the truck. Brilliant. <laughs> and, yeah. Oh, I'm sure we watch it whenever we do a Pierce Brosnan so, season yeah. at some point. Yeah. Or Linda Hamilton. Well, I, we can't really do a Linda Hamilton. But season. basically it was Terminator 2 and then that yeah. one. Like it, there's not a whole lot of action movies <laughs> she was in that, as, as far as I'm aware. Don't know if we could do a whole Linda Hamilton season. No, nothing against Linda Hamilton, who I think is great. I just don't know if we can do a whole season on her. Anyway, yeah. what's happening in daylight? <laughs> okay, so Pierce, or geez. so Pierce goes down. He gets the yeah. Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan comes in, and saves the day. No. No. Yeah, the name's um, Bond, James Bond. What? What's your doing here? Yeah, yeah. So Kate comes, jumps down. He's able to get the dog up, but more of the the staircase just collapsed. And he tells everybody to leave. And again, this feels like a moment. Um, what I was mentioning prior with Poseidon Adventure, where I'm going to spoil a movie that's you know very old. So I apologize if you haven't seen it. Um, with Poseidon Adventure, Gene Hackman, he basically, he has this moment where the only way to open up the door is you have to crank this thing, but it's way over all of this water and this, um, these pipes and stuff. And whoever does it, they you know, probably won't make it back, but he's cranking it open. And he's, despite him being a reverend who's kind of lost his faith, he's cursing at God and saying, you know, take him um, instead of them and stuff like that. And then finally, he knows he doesn't have any more strength for himself to go back over. So he just lets himself drop or whatever. Um, that up until this point feels like the trajectory, I guess, for Kit, for that character too, where I'm like, oh, so he does that. He's saying go on without him. But then Madeline leans forward more and she falls in. And then be, starts becoming very hysterical about, well, you can't leave us. And they don't want to leave them now, group. But they finally all decide to go. <laughs> and they toss him a light. And because there's a there's a um, like sewer tunnel or uh, what are they called? The, like a grate that they're mm. able to see that will lead them, the rest of the group to daylight. And uh, yeah, and so they're in the water and Madeline now is has completely shifted tones again and she's hysterically crying and yelling at them saying she wouldn't leave and all the stuff and um yeah but they're still stuck in the water <laughs> that's basically it and trying to figure out where to go from there which they have to backtrack and they go they go underwater and then they get back to this, this little bit and then we get one of the other best lines in the movie uh, do you want to to give this one? The is this when Kit is yelling at the stuff, or is the yeah? This is when Kit is yelling at the stuff. Yeah. So again, this kind of goes with that what I was just talking about with the side adventure Gene Hackman thing, where he's putting a chart in the um, in it because their their thoughts are they talked about prior, where if there's enough pressure and a blow up, it will basically shoot them through the water to the surface but it's very dangerous and but you know it's all they have and so he punches into the dirt with one of the charges or like the mud and yelling about how the yelling at the structure basically saying that you should have taken me and not them because i found your heart and yeah 
<laughs> I just love the way he delivers the line. So he says, I found yeah. your heart, I found your heart, and I'm going to blow it out of your body. Yeah. Ah, uh, dear. If this movie wasn't PG-13, you probably would have swore as well. Um. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so they're going to do that. And then, again, we kind of get a cut back to them coming out of the great um, Grace and Norman are just basically going to leave for the day. And they happen to, you know, nice coincidence that they're the ones that find the group and they're able to pull them up and they're, you know, the group is all being brought up and given their shots or towels or whatever. And um, Grace keeps waiting and waiting. And even Steven is sitting there and he's waiting. Like he's waiting to see if Kip, because he knows that Kit's going to make it, but because no, they're best the, mates now for some reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the EMP kind of just says, uh, you know, nobody else is coming. And this is where we get again, that arc that we're, that was skimmed over with the family of Steven and his daughter and Sarah have now kind of all reconciled. Like they're all a, a nice family unit because that was something that was supposed to be an issue but then was thrown out but then um grace has a very kind of melodramatic moment because they say that again nobody else is coming out which it's weird the scene the scene feels strange because it's like one of those where she's crying and having this beat and it feels like a scene where then you would see george pop up after in any other movie it's like oh nobody else is alive and then the person comes out but no george's i mean george's no, dead but george is just dead no it's just been forgotten yeah. about in this stage fortunately so you just kind of see grace cry and then we jump back to yeah kit and madeline and they're setting off the explosion and through it he's pushed down under the mud more and then she comes over grabs his hand the explosion happens and she's being sucked up and she's trying to hold on to him and Again, thinking that he's going to just sacrifice himself because that's where it's all leading. He lets go of her hand and she shoots up above the water and, you know, ends up in the, um, was it the New Jersey River? I can't think of the, or the, can't think of the river in itself. Is it the Hudson? But Yes, the Hudson. Yes. Okay. And then, yeah. And the rescue boats then, are very um, conveniently but, placed. Yeah, they're all over the place because apparently they knew that people would be shooting up out of the water. Um and they also knew right, exactly think- where they would be shooting up from the, from the water. Like um, they obviously uh, figured out the trajectory exactly of where they would pop. Yeah, and not only that though, because it's a slow movie and he can't die. He that pops is absolutely up true. randomly floating, <laughs> and he's able to. It's not like he even needs resuscitation or anything. She just kind of flips him over, and he coughs up some water, and then he's okay for the most part (laughs) besides having to go on that stretcher (laughs) yeah and then pretty much like you know like uh kit gives grace her bracelet back um of you know uh, following georgie's wishes and then the movie kind of ends in the way that so many 90s action movie ends with either somebody about to be bundled into an ambulance or actually being bundled into an ambulance. Yeah. And what I didn't get with the gray scene is I thought he would at least say, because there's the whole bit of George saying, I never got to tell her I love her. You know, he ends up saying it to himself after they all leave. But I felt like 
you know, you'd almost want Kit to have said he wanted to say he loved, I don't know, like something to tie it together better. Yeah. Or say that he was going to tell you tonight he loved you or something i don't know yeah it it does feel like it should have been wrapped it, it does feel like the you know the character of george deserved better these these characters deserve better but you know this being the 90s we're moving back yeah. to our more important white characters um for their yeah. banter <laughs> yeah so that they're going to head back to are going to go to the hospital and she's talking about how you know she's going to ride with him and he says well i thought you're leaving she goes well like i'm not i don't look too great right now i have no job no um she's homeless. no home yeah and she's got no car yeah, and so i'm gonna ride with you yeah. so i'm gonna ride with you he says well on one condition we take the bridge boom then, yeah we end on a quip and then a very awkward shot of the twin towers and then we cut to credits yeah yeah it it's interesting like it's weird that you know so many movies have been edited post 9/11 that you think you would assume that this movie would have just been edited to take that shot out of just being like oh we'll just end on the quippy line and then cut to credits but nope that twin tower shop still there. Twenty five yeah. years later. I mean, it wasn't the yeah, the um, that Blu-ray I watched, and there was even I don't know why they put a lot into for a movie like Daylight, which I wasn't. You know, we discussed earlier that not too many people know about. They put a lot into the Blu-ray, and it was even one of the special ones where it's like if you're connected to the internet, they incorporate new trailers, and I don't know. It was a well done one, but yeah. Well, I mean, it must have a certain amount of audience because, like, I I did see, uh, you know, looking for articles about it and looking for kind of behind the scenes of things about it. You know, there had there was some uh, articles from the kind of twentieth anniversary of the film, and some articles uh, trying to kind of um, critical kind of reevaluations and stuff like that. I even found one reviewer who was talking about it being his favorite stolen movie which blew my mind but um, so there is there is fans of the movie out there you know it might be one of his kind of uh lesser known uh ones you know particularly when compared to the rocky films or the rambo films or even like the expendable films or whatever but um yep it must have some fans out there <laughs> oh i did want to mention as well even though it's not quite the banger we've had in in recent weeks that we do end on a well, it's weird because we just had like a we've not had like a soundtrack We've had just like this kind of uh, score by Randy Edelman. So I, I assumed this one would be without a kind of theme song like we've kind of had in, in previous editions. And we've had a number of great um, end credit songs like the Dread song at the end of Judge Dread by The Cure. And, yeah. um, you know, like the Demolition Man song by Sting at the end of Demolition Man and stuff. But this, for some reason, yeah, Daylight did have a theme. Uh, so we end on an end credit song, uh, Whenever There Is Love by Donna Summer, which seemed quite random and out of place. But yeah, fair enough. Fair enough, Daylight. Apparently the 90s required a theme song. <laughs> yeah, perfect. No, and I, I, I actually noticed this too, is that, so we talked about all the inconsistencies and surprisingly, I don't know, we, we talked about, um, I think a few episodes prior with the Razzies, 
which I know he was nominated again for worst actor for Daylight. And that one was kind of shocking to me of, I guess, watching this in comparison to even some of the ones we've watched over the last couple of weeks of, you know, like, well, he wasn't even, they're just nominating Stallone just to nominate Nate Stallone. It doesn't even feel like. For sure. He wasn't I, I, I definitely agree with that. I was kind of shocked by that as well, because there has been a bunch of episodes where I've like recast the role of Stallone as somebody else in my kind of fantasy remakes of some of these movies and there has been several movies where even some of the really good ones like uh demolition man where i've i've said that i like stone's performance but stone is like the third best thing in in demolition man after yeah uh wesley snipes and sandra bullock and i would say this is probably his most likable performance that we've seen him in all season certainly is yeah i I mean i like he is i would say he's very likable i i really like his character in in cliffhanger and i would say up until this point in the season is probably his best acting performance is in cliffhanger which i think he is he's maybe not the best thing in cliffhanger he's maybe just pipped out by john lithgow but he's he's certainly close to being the best thing in cliffhanger and i definitely think he is the best thing in this movie and gives the best performance in this movie yeah i agree completely with that so yeah suck it razzies (laughs) oh but that's just i I think we could we could go into a whole conversation about the razzies it's like stallone adam sandler it's like there's just certain people that they nominate just because <laughs> yeah as as a matter as a matter of course however we need to to wrap up this particular edition of all 90s action all the time that is just our thoughts on daylight we would love to hear any of your thoughts on the movie we'd also love to hear your comments on the podcast generally so please rate review and subscribe to the podcast on apple podcasts on spotify you know where you, wherever you're checking out uh podcasts uh, check it out uh, give us a little bit of a review and remember uh to give five stars on those reviews because apparently if you give anything less than five stars it means that we are awful. I don't know why, but that is just the way these <laughs> things work. Algorithms, I don't understand them either. But anyway, that's all for this time. Uh, just uh, leaves me to say uh, goodbye. And um, Craig, do you want to say anything before we go on out? Um, not today. Yeah, thanks for... It's always been fun, and I can't wait for the next episode, which is my favorite Stallone movie so I stuck through it until now (laughs) and that movie is Copland but until then see ya